text for today's sermon is from 1 John, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 1 John 1, 3 and 4. The Apostle John says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I've titled the message today, The Three R's of Evangelism. The requirement, the reason, and the result of biblical evangelism. And from this text, I want to point out three aspects of evangelism. First, in verse 3, we'll look at the requirement to tell others about Christ. Second, we'll look at the second part of verse 3, the reason for evangelism given in this text, why the Apostle John and his associates proclaimed Christ. And third, in verse 4, we'll see the result of of their evangelism efforts. Now, it might seem like an interesting place to talk about evangelism, but if you consider the Gospel of John, John says he wrote the Gospel of John so that people would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and believing have eternal life. And while 1 John, perhaps more so than John, is written to believers still a general epistle epistle that was sent out to all the churches. And this opening of his general epistle in 1 John, John gives the reason why he proclaims Christ. And it's the same reason, I believe, that he gave in the Gospel of John. So to begin, let's look at the requirement for evangelism. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. The requirement to tell others about Christ is to know him yourself. The requirement is to know him. If you've not seen Christ with the eyes of faith or heard Christ with the ears of faith, then you're in no position to proclaim him to others. Remember our scripture reading this morning, and no doubt John had that in mind when he wrote these words. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. If a man knows Christ, if a woman knows Christ, they cannot but speak of him. Now God may use non-Christians to bring an unbeliever to faith. God can do that. God can use those who are religious, right, who spent years in the church, and God can use someone who's not saved declaring Christ to bring that person to faith, but that's not what the apostles were doing. The apostles were not declaring a Christ they did not know. The apostle John was not sharing a message simply that he heard about. He was declaring a Christ whom he knew and whom he loved. Now this word proclaim, where it says that which we have seen and heard we proclaim, it comes from the word angel that we see in the New Testament, messenger. The apostles declared a heavenly message, the message of Christ and his gospel. And they declared it because they had experienced Christ. That's the requirement. They had seen Christ as beautiful and magnificent. 
They had heard his words. They had res- his words has re- had resonated in their souls. And they were proclaiming this message of Christ because they knew him and loved him. They had seen him. They had heard him. Now, as I talk about evangelism, evangelism applies to all Christians. But in a special way, I want to say a few words on this. In a special way, evangelism applies to those who are called to preach God's word. And, of course, the apostles were called to preach God's word. And Paul tells Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4.5, tells this young pastor to do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of proclaiming Christ. Do the work of proclaiming what you have seen and heard. As I was thinking about this, I just thought about the course of my life and interacting. And I said, how many pastors are there that don't do the work of an evangelist? That don't do the work that the Apostle John did. And I want to share just a brief word about evangelism, open-air preaching, street evangelism. Whenever I hear people, and especially those who are pastors, these are men who are called to proclaim the inerrant, all-powerful, transforming Word of God. When I hear men like that talk poorly of open-air preaching or street evangelism, I am greatly troubled. Because if a man will not stand up among the pagans and the God-haters of his day in his community and proclaim the Lordship of Christ in the most emphatic way that he can, then he has no business preaching Christ from the comfort of a pulpit in an air-conditioned sanctuary. If he will not stand and preach the duties of repentance to those who will never darken the door of a church, then he has no business preaching the glories of heaven to those who are comfortable in Zion, sitting in the pews. If a man will not engage the world with the lordship of Christ, then he has no business feeding Christ's sheep. Now the apostles, it was their joy to proclaim Christ. We'll get to that more in our final verse. It was their joy. Any opportunity they had, they would take it to proclaim Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead, Lord of all. If a man will not take This word, and preach it among the lost, he should not preach it to the saved. If we will not stand and call out sin and rebellion against God at the marketplace, at the abortion mill, on the streets, if a man will not proclaim Christ in the public, then he is not doing the work of an evangelist. And again, I am speaking specifically to, to those who are called to be ministers of the gospel. We look at the example of Paul. He did proclaim Christ in the marketplace, and he also proclaimed Christ in personal relationships. To the question of should our evangelism be personal relationships or a proclamation of Christ to the masses, the answer is yes. It should be both. We proclaim Christ any opportunity we have, and we proclaim Christ in our interactions with others. A man who is called, and I've shared this before, as Spurgeon said, if you are called to preach the word, you should first be preaching out of doors before you preach in the church. John could not help but speak of what he had seen and heard, and that is the message that he proclaimed. Now, despite that, that if you are called to preach the word, you should be um, proclaiming Christ in all places. How many have shared Christ and yet never knew him? 
There are some, no doubt, who have done more evangelism than Christians, and yet they were not even saved. Many of you might know, and you might be more familiar, Bob, with a man named Chuck Templeton, who was Billy Graham's ministry partner. This man proclaimed Christ for years in front of thousands of people alongside Billy Graham. But then Templeton walked away. He walked away from the faith. He had proclaimed a Christ whom he didn't know. He had shared a message about a Christ whom he did not believe in. The apostles weren't like that. The apostle John was not like that. What does he say? He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. They proclaimed what they saw and heard. They had experienced Jesus in their soul. They did not merely experience Jesus as a bystander. They didn't experience him as Chuck Templeton did. They did not know Jesus in, in, in the vague way that many whom I have known have spent years in ministry and yet never knew the Jesus they proclaimed. They did not meet this initial requirement for evangelism to know the Christ that you proclaim. The apostles shared what they had experienced. They, sh- they shared the Christ whom they knew. They didn't share a mere idea of Christ. And there is a dreadful amount of men, and unfortunately now women who are in ministry as pastors, who know nothing of fellowship with Christ. They know nothing of the saving power of Christ in their hearts. They know nothing of the new birth brought about by the Spirit when dead sinners hear the words of Christ. They know nothing of fighting against sin by the power of Christ. They know nothing of the comfort of Christ when they're going through trials and tribulations. They know nothing of Christ in a personal way. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And yet how many are there sheep that are, or goats, we should say, that are not following Christ and yet are trying to share a message about him? So to those people, the, the, they need to fulfill the first requirement in order to share Christ. Mr. Pastor, Mr. Evangelist, Mr. Youth or Worship Pastor, do you know the Christ that you sing about, that you proclaim, or is it merely a job? And unfortunately, I've met many in this day that it is simply a job. Ministry is a religion. Christ is a religion, not the Savior of their soul and the Lord and Master of their life. A man who knows Jesus and loves Jesus and obeys Jesus may speak of him to others. A man who knows of Jesus loves the idea of Jesus and merely considers the words of Jesus is in no position to speak of him to others. That's the requirement. It's to know the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John wasn't proclaiming a message that he merely heard about. He was proclaiming a message of the Christ whom he had seen and heard. And of course, in our day, we do not see Christ physically as John did. But we are to proclaim the Christ whom we have seen with the eyes of faith, that we have heard with the ears of faith, that we have experienced in our soul, that we have beheld him as beautiful and magnificent. The requirement is the same for us. Number two, the reason for evangelism. Look at the second part of verse three. The reason for the evangelism of the Apostle John and his associates. So that, so that, So this is why we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you too may have fellowship with 
us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He tells us that the reason He proclaimed Christ was to have fellowship with others. Now the greatest reason we proclaim Christ is to glorify God. But let us not overlook what the Apostle John tells us in our text is the reason why he was sharing Christ. So that you too may have fellowship with us. With us. Not with Christ. Yes, that's true. He's going to say our fellowship is with the Father and with Christ. But we want to have fellowship. You to have fellowship with us. And do you desire to have fellowship with those who at the moment hate Christ? They hate the Christ whom you love. Now I don't mean you want them to like you or be friends with them. I mean do you desire that this person come to know Christ so that they can join with you in the partnership of faith. Now, there are many reasons it's easier, easy for us to not want this fellowship with others. First of all, it's a change. We're creatures of habit, and new things, even new people, can cause us to resist. And there's a peculiar habit among humans to resist newcomers. This can be due to the fear that the new person will outshine them, think of a new employee at work, or the fear that the newcomer will bring everyone down with them. And that example is perhaps most evident in war. Battle-hardened soldiers are often hesitant to welcome the replacements because these replacements are green, immature, inexperienced, and liable to get everyone killed. In books I've read of World War II, you know, it's these, these men who have spent years in Europe fighting the Nazis and then the replacements come and it's, it's a difficult thing for those men to, to welcome these newcomers who haven't experienced the, the fighting, who haven't experienced the loss and they don't have a connection with them and they feel that they're also going to make everyone else in danger. In the Vietnam War, the soldiers experienced more of this than usual due to a, a rotation policy that was instituted by the Johnson administration. And, and one source describes the newcomers in this way. They talk too loud. So these are the new, new soldiers going to Vietnam. They talk too loud, made too much noise while moving around, didn't know what to take into the bush or even how to wear it properly, couldn't respond to basic combat commands, fired too much ammo, intended to flake out on even the easiest 10-click moves. And they even got homesick. Now, there's a sense that this is understandable in human warfare. There's a sense that we can understand why soldiers would be hesitant to welcome newcomers into their ranks because we're talking about physical life and death. That at that moment, if this person is not able to perform at the level that they need to, it could cost everyone their lives. And so I understand that to a degree in a, in a, human, in a human battle. But we do not serve in an army under the leadership of Lyndon B. Johnson or Donald Trump or any arm of the flesh. We serve in the army of the Lord and our captain is Christ. And listen to this quote from J.C. Ryle. This comes from his book, Holiness, which if you have not read it, it's worth its weight in gold. Um, amazing book talking about holiness and the requirement for Christians to be holy. But he says this regarding this idea of being in the Lord's army. The captain of our salvation never fails to lead his soldiers to victory. He never makes any useless movements, never errs in judgment, never commits any mistake. His eye is on all his followers, from the greatest of them, even to the least. The humblest servant in his army is not forgotten. The souls whom he has purchased and redeemed with his own blood 
are far too precious to be wasted and thrown away. In the Lord's army, there cannot be this idea of newcomers coming in to, to, and bringing people down. The Lord sustains all His people. He sustains all His people. And if part of our main desire in our evangelism is not to truly see others join with us in the army of the Lord, then we have missed the mark. The standard for entrance into the army of the Lord are not those things which are esteemed by the world. It's not, you know, these, these people we'd want to be saved because they kind of have it together. You know, they're going to be able to, to transition nicely to Christianity. But these people over here, they're messed up and they're going to mess things up if they come into the, into the Lord's army. If they come into the church, they're going to screw it up. These people, yeah, they're all lost, but, you know, these people would be better if they were saved, not these ones. What does Paul say? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That's 1 Corinthians 1. My friends, if I looked at myself 12 years ago, before I became a Christian, I would not want to have fellowship with me. God didn't choose someone of noble birth, of good repute. He didn't choose someone who had it all together. He chose a wretch like me, and he saved me. Now, what did Paul say about his fellow Jews and his evangelistic fervor for them? What was Paul's attitude towards the Jews? These were men who, at this point in Paul's life, weren't necessarily signing up to receive his ministry email letter and donate to his ministry. These were men who wanted to see Paul dead because of his proclamation of Christ, whom he declared to be the Messiah of the Old Testament. What did Paul say to these men? Or of these men, I should say. He said this in Romans 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish, listen to this, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do we have that anguish in our hearts for unbelievers? Do we have that that that? Sorrow deep down in our soul for those who don't know Christ. Now I confess this day before the Lord and before you that at times I have not wanted to have fellowship with the unbelievers to whom I was proclaiming Christ. It's more comfortable for me and no doubt for them if they stay as they are. I've done my duty in preaching the gospel. I can rest easy because I've, I've done my duty. I've, I've done what you've asked me to do, Lord. And now they've had their opportunity to hear the gospel. And we can all go on with our lives and go our separate ways. Oh, how far short I fall of the heart of Christ and the apostles. John is declaring Christ so that he may have fellowship with others. This word fellowship denotes a partnership. Yes, we're not to be unequally yoked to unbelievers, not to be partners with unbelievers. But do we want them to partner with us? by abandoning their unbelief and coming to Christ. Our partnership, our fellowship is not a partnership based on who we are or who they are, but on who Christ is. Note that he says, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now John's going to unpack the doctrinal importance of that throughout 1 John, and I can't get into that now for the sake of time. But practically, having this Apostle John type passion, this biblical passion for the fellowship of others, of believers to increase, 
means that we have to be prepared to deal with those new to the faith. We have to be prepared to deal with the new soldiers, the new recruits. A baby is a great blessing, but a baby is a lot more work than an older child. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 5, at the end of Hebrews 5, the author of Hebrews does not rebuke his readers because they were young in the faith. He does not rebuke them because they were children in the faith needing milk. He rebukes them because he says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. He rebukes them because they were no longer new in the faith, but they were still acting as if they were. They should have been mature, but they weren't. Now look, just in society, so in the church, there is far too much tolerance for lack of maturity. Let me look at our culture. Men stay at home through their 20s, 30s, 40s, playing video games, wasting the, the, the strength of their, their days. Instead of acting the man, raising up godly families, or if they're not called to get married, going out and, and serving Christ. Now I get that. And so it is in the church. Christians, it seems, at times, are never challenged to reach maturity. Even on the doctrine central to the gospel of grace, God's election, God's sovereignty, man's depravity, doctrines that are clearly taught and essential to a biblical understanding of the gospel of Christ, even with these doctrines, Christians are allowed to flounder in immaturity for years and years. That is unacceptable, just like it is unacceptable for the men in our society to continue year after year in immaturity. But the answer to that problem in the church is not to stop bringing in new believers, just like the answer in society is not to stop having babies. The answer is to train up our children, train up our young men, train up our boys so that they're able to handle solid food, so that they can be mature. So the answer in the church is to train up Christians so that they are mature, so that their powers of discernment are trained, so they can think for themselves and freely submit to the clear teachings of God's word. So we must apply this text, and that's why I want to spend a moment on that. Because if we apply this this desire, this heartfelt desire for evangelism with others, we have to deal with the problem, if you want to put it that way, of newcomers. The reason for evangelism given in this text is not to fulfill a duty or to glorify God, though, though those are true. It is our duty to proclaim Christ, and it glorifies God regardless of if anyone's saved in our efforts. But the reason given in this text is to get more sinners to leave their sin and join us. And it's not just in theory, right? It's not just in, in theory. I would love to see people saved so they can go to heaven, but I don't really want to have fellowship with them. It's, it's practical. Listen how, I mean, read Paul's letters and how he speaks of the Christians that came to faith through his ministry. And these were Christians that we're pretty messed up sometimes. And if we look at ourselves, sometimes we are as well. But the point is that Paul had a joy for them. He desired their fellowship. He longed to be with them. Think of the Corinthians and all the problems they had. Yet he loved them. And he loved fellowshipping with them. Well, finally, very briefly, we've talked about the requirement of evangelism. To know what you proclaim. To know who you proclaim. We've talked about the reason, so that we may have fellowship with others. And finally, we're going to talk about the result of evangelism, the results. Verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, 
I want to make a brief comment about what you may see. Your your if you, your text may say your your joy instead of our joy. Now the reason for this this is what's called a variant, and the and I, this kind of ties into what I'm talking about. So I want to just spend a couple minutes on this. The reason that some Bibles say your and some say our is because when John wrote this letter, John wrote First John. I mean, imagine John, an old man. I don't know where he was. I haven't looked into that. I didn't get a chance to look into that when he wrote this. Perhaps he's on Patmos. Perhaps he's somewhere else. Writing this letter to be sent to the Christians of what is um, now modern-day Turkey. Somewhat, he, he writes this letter, and maybe he made one copy. Maybe he made a, a couple original copies, and then he, he hands it off to someone to go distribute to the churches. And I just listened to a message by David Miller, a um, great preacher, on, on what it would have been like to be the one carrying... Ephesians, 1 John, to be the Christian that, that Paul or John entrusted with to carry this letter to the churches. It's a, that's, that's just a, a crazy thing to think about. And what happened was when, when this letter came to the, to the churches in modern day Turkey and, and throughout the known world, the Christians desired for others to hear this message. They desired for others to join them in their fellowship. So what did they do? They copied this letter hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Their desire for evangelism led them to copy 1 John, to get it out to more churches. They didn't have a photocopier. They didn't have a printing press. They had to copy this by hand. And you know what? Their desire for the spread of the gospel led to a little bit of messiness because these were not professional scribes. These were, these were ordinary Christian men and women who knew how to write and read, but they were not professional scribes. They didn't do this for a living. You get to the to later 15th, 16th centuries, even before that, you have monks who are trained to, to copy Scripture. In the first century, it was not like that. Their desire to spread this message of Christ led them to copy God's Word. And when that happened, there were times that they made an error in their copying. So... For example, in our text, in the English, and I don't know the Greek word, you know, offhand for this word, but you can see in English, the word our and your is, the only difference is one letter. So if someone's copying this hundreds of times, and they're tired, and they're, they're maybe even persecuted, and they forget to put the Y in one of their letters, assuming in English, you know what I'm saying? In Greek, same thing can happen. There could be one letter, even one accent that changes a word meaning. Now, so that's why there's, there's a difference. Now, the fact that we have all these manuscripts, the fact that, that the Christians wanted to get the message of Christ out, does not mean that we have a lack of confidence in God's Word. I believe God sovereignly used that process to preserve His Word. There are more copies of 1 John and New, in, in New Testament letters than anything else in the world. And I'm not going to go into that. I have resources on that if you're interested in it. But I wanted to mention it. Because it does relate to evangelism, outreach, and growth, and the desire to see others come to know Jesus. These early Christians, they could have said, you know what? This is the this is the, the this is the letter from John the Apostle. We dare not copy this. We might make a mistake. But they said, you know what? We're going to get this message out. We're going to deal with the messiness of it. We're going to deal with new people coming to faith. And we're going to deal with the potential of us making an error. Because they knew that when John wrote this, he desired others to know Christ. And he desired to get his message out to the world. And I think God used that process sovereignly to actually preserve his word. 
um, which is an amazing thing to talk about for another time, how God used that process of regular Christians copying his word and spreading it far and wide to preserve his word for us. But it says joy. It brought the apostles joy to see others brought into the kingdom and strengthened in their faith. John did not say we're writing these things so that we may do our duty. He didn't say I'm writing this so that I can fulfill my duty. He says I'm writing this so that my joy, our joy may be complete. He didn't say I'm writing this so that we'll be obedient. He said I'm doing it for joy. He brought the message of Christ because it brought joy to him. Now, and again, going back to what I've said earlier, I've wondered at times, as I go back to this idea of evangelism and the resistance to it that I've experienced a little bit in my life by those who are called to preach the word and do the work of an evangelist. And I found myself having to debate with them about the validity of proclaiming the gospel to the masses, as Christ did, as Peter did, as Stephen did, as Paul did, as George Whitfield did, as Charles Spurgeon did. And I just started thinking, why do I have to make a case to these men who are called to preach the word, why do I have to make a case that it's your duty to proclaim Christ? Shouldn't it be your joy to proclaim Christ? Shouldn't, especially Christian ministers, shouldn't it be their joy in season and out of season to proclaim Christ? It should be their joy to do the very thing they're resisting. The Apostle John says it's our joy. It's our joy to proclaim what we have seen and heard. And what does it say? He says, so that our joy may be complete, to fill it up. The idea is a vessel, right? It's, it, it, it's nearly full with the joy of knowing the Lord, knowing that your sins are forgiven, that God has saved you, but something's missing. And it's that heartfelt desire for others to enter into that joy, that desire to see someone else come to know the Lord. Fill up that joy, complete it. By reaching out to someone, come with me in this journey of knowing Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy tell the Thessalonians that you are our glory and joy. Jesus said there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Joy when, new pers- when a new person comes to Christ. It's just like a new baby. We don't love our other children less, but there's still more joy when a, new, when, a new, when a new baby comes, there's still joy when someone comes to Christ. The Apostle John says that that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. Know Christ, speak of him to others. Oh, how I need to know Christ more. And I'll have even more desire for others to come to know him. He says that we are to do this so that we may have fellowship with others. Seek to have the mind of Christ to a lost world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And John says, finally here, all this in all this proclamation so that our joy may be complete because your joy will be complete in Christ. Your joy is going to be filled up in coming to Christ, which is why he's writing this stuff so that their joy will be complete, so that his joy will be complete. It's all about joy in Christ. It is a joy to speak of Christ to others, and it is our duty, yes, glorifies God, but may it also be our joy to call upon others to turn from sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. 
I pray, Lord, that we would be obedient to it. I pray that those who have heard my word would examine it and compare it with Scripture. Your word is the final authority on all things. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to know Christ more, to love him more, that he would be more and more, we would experience him more and more. I know I am very cautious against emotionalism and, and uh, that whole movement, but Lord, I, I want to know and experience Christ more in my heart because he is with us, he has saved us, and he calls us to tell others about him. I pray, Lord, that we would fulfill the requirement for evangelism, that each one here would know Christ. We pray for the children. I pray, Lord, that we would have a desire, as Paul did, as John did, as Christ did, to see others come into the faith and that we would do it for joy because we are truly rejoicing in seeing others come to know the Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hmm. Um, very briefly, if there's any comments, exhortation from the men. If not, we'll end in, in a song. Well, I, I like that.